Hey Zio Church, it's Pastor Matt here and uh, it's great to get this time with you because this week in our Moments with God series we're looking at the agony of unanswered prayer. I'm sure we've all been there. On Sunday morning, I shared about how we respond in moments when heaven feels silent and we feel like our prayers are just bouncing back at us off the ceiling and really would encourage you to listen to that message and hopefully be encouraged um, by how we respond in those moments. But in this podcast, I want to explore the agony of unanswered prayers when God does give us an answer, but when it's not the answer that we're hoping for, essentially when God says no. Many of you will know that some years back, my first marriage sadly broke down and after a period of about five years, we were eventually divorced. And this was absolutely not what I'd signed up for in any way expected when I made my vows at a church over 25 years previous to that. To say that I was heartbroken like was an understatement. I was pretty much completely broken in every way. And I was broken because of the guilt and shame about my own failures that had contributed to the breakup of the marriage. And I was broken because of the pain of rejection and loss and grief for a relationship that I longed to be restored. And I prayed that it would be restored. Like every day I prayed for months, for years, and often with tears. And friends prayed and family members prayed. We prayed that the relationship would come alive again, that it would be resurrected. After all, that's what God does, doesn't he? That's, he's the God of resurrection. He's got the power to bring things back from the dead. But after many years and endless tears, God said no. And I bore the stigma of being a divorced man, the shame of a failed relationship, a box that I would have to tick on forms, divorced. Never, ever imagined that would be my reality. And of course, the mystery of all this is that I know that like God hates divorce. So why didn't God say yes? Because like I've heard wonderful stories of broken marriages that were restored. So why not me? Why not me? Like, have you ever wrestled with those kind of questions? Like, why is it that this person over here gets healed, but this person over here doesn't get healed? Why is it that this person's job is saved, but another person loses their job? Why is it that someone's relationship is miraculously rescued, and then this person over here is left feeling heartbroken and alone? It's like, is prayer rolling a dice? Is God playing games? Does God have favorites? And I guess we can take some comfort from the fact that the Bible is no stranger to these questions with this kind of puzzle. So, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 17, we have a story of a widow whose only son becomes sick and he dies. And she prays and the prophet Elijah prays and the son is wonderfully and miraculously raised back to life. And yet in 2 Samuel 12, King David prays and fasts and begs God to heal his son who's sick. But the child dies and there's no miracle revival return this time. There are countless examples in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments of God's yes and what appears to be God's no. And these examples remind us that we live between miracle and mystery. Like friends, I've seen miracles, experienced miracles. I've But I've also seen things go the other way. I know people who've been miraculously healed of cancer and I've buried people who weren't. I know people who were told that they'd never be able to have a baby, 
but then miraculously they conceive and now they've got more than one child. And I know people who have longed for a child, prayed just as earnestly, perhaps with even more tears, but their hopes were dashed. We live between miracles and mystery. And that place between miracle and mystery is messy because life is messy. Life is not black and white, clear cut. Jesus famously said in John chapter 16, verse 33, that in this world we will have trouble. We will face trials and sufferings because the world is not as it should be. The world is broken. We live in a world where there is darkness and death. And so in some sense, it should be no surprise to us that darkness and death will touch us all. And Jesus equally made it clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that God doesn't play favorites. He said that good things happen to everybody and bad things happen to everybody. Everyone suffers in a sense because God is fair. He doesn't have favorites. And so because of the reality of brokenness and suffering, Jesus repeatedly encourages us to pray and never stop to invite God into our struggles, to ask for his help, for his perspective. But, but what then? Maybe part of the problem is that we are understandably fixated on the answer that we want. What we really want is for God just to say, yes, we've prayed those prayers. God, I need a job. Yes. God, heal my family member. Yes. God, free me from anxiety. Yes. I mean, that would be so great, wouldn't it? So cool if, if God just said yes, but prayer isn't a slot machine. God isn't Santa. He's a savior. He, like he wants to save us for sure, but God's salvation, God's saving plan is much bigger, richer, more expansive than we could ever dream. And because God sees a much bigger picture than we can understand or imagine, his answers to our prayers are often different than what we were hoping for. As I said a couple of weeks ago, whilst we should and must relentlessly and per persistently pray about our circumstances, which Jesus commanded us to do, God is far more interested in changing us than changing our situations. But of course, that's not easy. We get a sense of the wrestling with God in a New Testament story that's found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 to 10. It's the story that's told by the Apostle Paul, the, the writer of most of the New Testament, the guy who literally travels uh, around continents to share the good news of Jesus. But Paul shares how he's been grappling with some form of relentless suffering, a constant pain. He uses the metaphor that it's like a piercing thorn stuck in your flesh that you can't remove. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. You get a literal thorn in the flesh and the ache and the agony and, and you can just feel it all the time until you get it out. Paul's got a thorn in the flesh. No one really knows what it is. But what does he do? He prays. He prays fervently and passionately. Uh, verse 8 tells us like three times, I begged the Lord to take it away. I mean, notice that word beg here. It's a strong word. But then notice how God responds. Paul says in verse 9, each time he said, God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Again, notice that little phrase, each time God said. Like Paul's giving us a window into a, a very intimate conversation with Father God. 
You kind of get the sense of like prayer attempt number one. Paul prays, God, I'm in constant agony. I can't deal with this. I beg you, remove this thorn from my flesh. And God responds, no, Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So Paul pushes into prayer attempt number two. Uh, That's the wrong answer, God. I don't think you heard me right. What I need is to be free of pain. And And personally, I think your power would work really, really good to bring healing right now. And God responds to prayer attempt number two and says the same thing. No, Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And so Paul goes again, prayer attempt number three. And you can imagine the exasperation, the begging, the longing, this potent language that he's using. God, have mercy on me. Listen to me. You have no idea what I'm going through. I'm supposed to be planting churches, preaching the gospel, fighting persecution, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, serving the poor. Like, give me a break. This is your mission. Get me out of this. I beg you. Please remove the thorn. And God responds in the same way to prayer attempt number three. No, Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And it seems as Paul tells the story that in this moment he finally gets it, although it's not the answer he wants, of course, but he makes a choice. In fact, he makes two choices. The two choices that I spoke about in my message on Sunday about the silence of unanswered prayer. He surrenders to love, God's grace, and he surrenders to growth, allowing God's power to transform him in his weakness. He surrenders to God's love and he surrenders to growth. Like he finally, truly listens to what God is saying. It's, it's that sense, I wonder, that God is saying, Paul, I'm not going to heal you. And not because I don't love you, but because the reality is that this side of heaven, not everyone is going to be healed before they die. Because this world is broken. And I need men and women who can bring hope to others who are suffering because they have learnt how to stand in the midst of the same storm. So what you truly need in the face of your suffering and your weakness is my love, which drives out fear and my strength and my power to help you keep on keeping on, even despite the pain, to rise above it and overcome it, even in the face of it. And so with this understanding, Paul continues on in verse 9 and 10 and says, so now he says, well, I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong, Paul says. In my weakness, God's power grows strength in me. Now, let me be really clear here. Like Paul isn't embracing some martyrdom complex. Like he's not saying to God, bring on the suffering, more thorns, Lord. Of course not. Like clearly he would still love to be healed. Like no one wants a thorn in their flesh. But he's come to understand that when God says no, 
when things don't play out as he would have hoped or liked, and when as a result he understandably feels weak and broken and hurting, that's an opportunity for the amazing power of God to be at work in him for his good and for the benefit of others. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, when he says that God often comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. Notice Paul doesn't say that God delivers us from all our troubles. God doesn't say yes to every prayer in the way that we'd hope, but he comforts us with his love and power. And that love and power can then work through us to comfort others who are perhaps going through similar things. God comforts, God's comfort can bless us and benefit others even in the midst of a no from heaven. I guess the most powerful example of this is the story of what happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's about to be crucified, to pay the price for the whole of humanity's rejection of God, to bear upon his tortured body the sinfulness and selfishness, darkness and death of all creation. We believe that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they give an account of this Gethsemane moment, they waste no words in describing the unbearable, unprecedented anxiety that Jesus is facing in this moment because he knows what's about to happen in the next 24 hours. He he knows in just an hour's time he'll be arrested, he'll be spat upon, he'll be chained up, he'll be mocked, he'll be beaten, he'll be tortured, he'll be stripped naked, he'll be whipped within an inch of his life back and front from top from the top of his head to the toes of his feet. He'll carry a wooden cross, he'll be nailed to that cross naked and cold and blooded, he'll be humiliated as people jeer at him and, and laugh at him. He will carry the weight of sin and separation from God. He will be consumed ultimately by death himself. No one will ever suffer as Jesus was due to suffer. I want to ask you, how would you feel if you were about to face that? How would you pray if you were about to say that? How did Jesus feel? Well, again, look at the accounts. The gospel writers use words like utter anguish, distress. Jesus is terrified. He's heavy hearted, overwhelmed, overcome with grief. He is broken hearted. Jesus literally tells his closest friends, Peter, James and John, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. It's like the weight of what he's feeling in this moment is so heavy, so burdensome that he literally feels like he could drop dead on the spot. It's like he can't breathe. In fact, Luke tells us in this account that Jesus is under such emotional and physical stress that blood vessels are bursting on his forehead and being drawn into large globules of sweat that pour down his face like rain. This is a level of physical and emotional agony that no one has ever experienced. And so you ask, how did Jesus pray? How would you pray? Well, he, he prays how you and I would pray. He says, Father God, if you are willing, 
please, can you find another way? Can there be another way for humanity to be saved? Could there be another way for sin to be paid for? Could there be another way for death to be defeated? Can we avoid the cross? Please, is there another way? And the answer from heaven is no. There is no other way. The worst of humanity's sin for all history can only be paid by the worst of suffering and in order for that then to be defeated. And so Jesus, with unparalleled courage and unending love, rises from the ground in Gethsemane in the depths of this moment and cries out the most powerful and potent prayer that anyone has ever prayed, particularly in the face of heaven's no, your will be done, God. I trust you regardless. You see the bigger picture and the bigger plan. Your will be done. Your will be done. You know, I just want to pause for a moment on this phrase, your will be done, because if we're not careful, it can become a cop-out prayer. Like we can be praying, God, I want you to heal this person, or, or I, I, I want you to save this person, but your will be done as if it's some kind of just like get out of jail free card. And that's not what's going on here. This phrase, your will be done, essentially the two most well-known places it appears is in the Lord's prayer. Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when Jesus says it in Gethsemane, your will be done. And, and often when we pray this, your will be done, what we're saying is, God, I don't really know what your will is, so ultimately you do what you want to do. But, but that's not what the Lord's prayer is about, and that's not what Jesus is praying here. In Gethsemane, Jesus has come to understand what God's will is, and he submits to it. God, your will be done. It's not that he doesn't know, he knows. And similarly, when, when Jesus invites us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done, he knows what God's will is. The scripture's clear, God's will is that people are saved. God's will is that people are healed, that marriages are restored, that people are able to be financially prosperous, that people have the fulfillment of a good job. The list goes on, it is God's will for heaven to break out. And the fact that, that Jesus tells us to pray your will be done is because sometimes friends, God will isn't done. Heaven hasn't fully broken out. We live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Not everything that happens on the earth is what God wants. But because he is God, he is able to weave it into a bigger picture. The tapestry of God's beautiful plan over the whole of creation as he seeks to restore all things through the death and resurrection of Jesus. When, when Jesus prays your will be done though for him in this moment, it's not that he didn't know what God's will is, he knew what it was, he knew it still had to be the cross. You know, it's worth reading each of the four gospel accounts, but I wanna pause for a moment on Luke's account of this story, which is told in Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 46. I've already mentioned a few things about it, but there are Two extra things in this story which tell us about how we respond in the face of a no from heaven. This is what Luke says. Then, accompanied by his disciples, Jesus left the upstairs and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. 
Jesus walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to to temptation. Now notice just two things from here. Firstly, verse 43. Notice that the Father God sends an angel from heaven to strengthen Jesus in the midst of this painful moment. This word strengthened in the original Greek language conveys that sense of like when you've had a meal after not eating for a long time. It's, I don't know if you've ever fasted or you felt poorly and just have that sense of, oh, I feel really, really weak because you're just not eating anything. It's like, it, like you've got no energy. It's really hard to even get up. And that's what Jesus is feeling like in this moment. And then an angel comes and we don't know what the angel does or how the angel does it, but we're told that Jesus is strengthened, like having a hearty meal, which gives you your energy back. It's a beautiful picture of God knowing what his son needs and providing strength in the midst of the suffering. Remember, that's exactly what he said and did for Paul in the second Corinthians passage we read. God said, I will give you strength in your weakness. He did it for Jesus. He did it for Paul. He'll do it for us, even in the midst of a no. But secondly, notice how the story starts and finishes. Before Jesus prays, Jesus turns to Peter, James and John and says to them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. And then we have this traumatic prayer moment. And then just before Jesus is arrested, he says the same thing again to the disciples. Pray that you will not give in to temptation. What's the temptation that he's talking about? It's the temptation to give up on God when God says no. In this moment, Jesus has to battle through that temptation himself, and he knows the disciples will face those same challenges too. In decades to come, James and Peter will both be killed because they're followers of Jesus. John, in in his future, will become a prisoner on the island of Patmos for the rest of his life. They're all going to face moments when God says no, when God doesn't save them in the way that he would. they want to be saved. And Jesus is saying, don't be tempted to give up on God in the face of a no from heaven. Like things may not play out how you want, but God still loves you. God is still for you. God will strengthen you. God will help you and he'll use your experience to help others. Don't give up on God in the face of heaven's no. Earlier in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist found himself in prison on death row because he was speaking out against the political and religious leaders of that time. Before he was imprisoned, he was inviting people to turn from their selfish ways and turn back to God. Because the Messiah, God's hope for the world, was about to break out into the world. In Luke chapter 7, verse 18 to 23, we read this story where John the Baptist asks from his prison cell, two friends to go and ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you God's hope for the world? Like here's here's the story as told by Luke. 
John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them, John the Baptist sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus caught, cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and he gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who are, have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the, church, to the poor. Blessed is anyone, Jesus says, who does not stumble on account of me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying to John, yes, John, I'm the one. Look at what God is doing through me. I'm the one. I'm the hope of the world. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who sets people free, John. But, John, I'm not going to set you free. Your story is soon going to come to an end. And that's what Jesus means in that final verse, verse 23, where Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's like Jesus is saying, John, you're not going to get out of this one. I know that's hard to hear, but there's a bigger plan going on. But you will be blessed and rewarded if you don't give up on God, John, because of heaven's no. Don't give up on God because of heaven's no. We live, my friends, between miracle and mystery. Like I, I truly, I don't understand why some prayers are yes and others are no. I know we live in a broken world and, and not everyone will experience a miracle or healing this side of heaven. I know how painful and agonizing and confusing it is when God says no or seems to be saying no. But I also know this for my own story and the story of many others and these stories in scripture that we've looked at today that if we choose to hold on to him even in the midst of the questions and the sadness he will strengthen us he will bring us through and he will help us to help others who have faced similar struggles he's done it for me he'll do it for you after all you know i was talking to someone uh, from Zio just a week or so ago who's been going through a really tough time with uh, with his wife ill for a long time in this COVID and we were both reflecting we both made decisions in tough times just to choose to hold on to God and we were both reflecting like if we didn't hold on to God where would we go to whom else would we turn like what like what's the result of just giving up on God then it feels completely hopeless but instead, let's hold on to God in the midst of heaven's no. When God says no, let his love be our comfort. Let his power be our strength. Let his hope be our trust. And let it be true for you. And let it be true through you to others who need it too. You know, I never wanted to be labeled a divorced man, but for many years until my wonderful redeeming story of, of meeting Amy and being married again and 
but God has enabled me to have empathy and understanding and connection and be able to support and comfort and help other people who've gone through relationship breakdown. God has used my tragedy to bring hope and help to others. Like, do I wish that it happened? Of course not. But God rescued me in it, healed me through it, even in days where I felt utterly lost because he rewrites the story. Hold on to God in the midst of heaven's no. As someone once said, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives, but God is not helpless amongst the ruins. Let me pray for you. Lord, as people listen to this message right now, as someone's listening to this, Lord, I don't know what they're going through, what they've gone through, what historical story still wounds them in the present. But I know this, life is truly hard, agonizing at times, but you are still good. You never promised us a pain-free life, but you promised us that you would never leave us. You promised that you would always be with us. You promised to be our strength and our comfort and our hope in the pain. You promised to bring us through, even through death itself, into eternal life with you in new creation where suffering will never rear its head again. And so we hold on to you, God. We hold on to your promises. We ask for your presence to come. In the midst of our questions, release your peace and comfort into our lives. Help us to trust you and hold on to you and praise you and worship you, even in the midst of heaven's no. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Be encouraged to keep connecting into the prayer groups, be encouraged to push into moments with God. God loves you, he's for you, and we love you too.